Crest in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, taking a closer Catholic look at current events, issues, and ideas. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. And good afternoon. Thanks for joining me. I'm Al Cresta, and we have got some wonderful material we're going to be sharing today. Uh, The conflict in the Middle East, of course, is on everybody's mind. It's dominating news coverage. And hopefully it's also generating intense prayer as we pray for the hostages. We pray that uh, Israel will be able to accomplish its goal of eliminating Hamas with as little loss of life as possible. But I thought I'd, I'd go back to an interview I did on the 70th anniversary of Kristallnacht. Kristallnacht, the Night of Broken Glass, was November 9th of 1938. Back in 2008, I interviewed the historian Mitchell Bard, who described what that night was like. Again, Hitler Youth, regular civilians, Nazi SS officials, all cooperated in ransacking and demolishing thousands of Jewish homes and businesses throughout Germany. Think about this. 267 synagogues were destroyed. 30,000 Jewish men were sent to concentration camps. It's a tragedy which I fear is being lost to history. As I look around at young college students today, they seem to have no, you might say, felt awareness of these kind of events. So I want to take time, go over why memory is so important and why Crystal Knock still matters. Also coming up, we have Veterans Day upon us, and I've asked Regis Martin to go over and remember the Great War. Now, this is what's funny. The Great War was what we called World War I when it happened. In fact, World War I didn't become World War I until there was World War II. And many historians actually believe that those two wars are just two phases of the same war. There was an armistice, you might say, for 20 years. The 20th century was a brutal, a brutal century. Also, Henry Crocker will be joining us, looking at American military history in the First World War. And then Chuck Gatica joins me. He was recently MC for the Michigan March for Life, the first uh, March for Life in Michigan. One year since Proposal 3 passed, over 3,000 pro-lifers showed up at this March for Life. Chuck's going to describe the event. But first, let's get the headlines. Thanks, Al. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Friday, November 11th. It's the feast of St. Leo the Great. Today's news brought to you by Visiting Angels, providing loving care and assistance for seniors in need at visitingangels.com. Israel will allow daily four-hour pauses in the fighting in Gaza against the Palestinian militant group Hamas. NBC's Keir Simmons reporting from Tel Aviv that the head of Mossad, the Israeli intelligence agency, has been in Qatar, along with the head of the CIA, for talks aimed at securing the release of hostages. Those talks are aimed at seeing if it's possible to get to a release of hostages. It has, of course, been incredibly difficult. The talks have fallen down on a number of occasions, but there is renewed hope. Meanwhile, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says Israel is not looking to rule Gaza. We don't seek to conquer Gaza. 
We don't seek to occupy Gaza, and we don't seek to govern Gaza. In a Fox News interview that aired Thursday, Netanyahu said that Israel will have to find a civilian government that will be there. The U.S. government is facing another potential shutdown. Congress needs to pass legislation to fund the government by November 17th. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says the only way to avoid a shutdown is through bipartisan cooperation. Democrats will continue talking to Republicans about finding a path forward on avoiding a shutdown that both sides support. Newly elected House Speaker Mike Johnson is yet to lay out his plans for a short-term spending plan to avert a shutdown. A U.S. military branch turns 248 years old today. The United States Marine Corps was born in a Philadelphia tavern during the Revolutionary War on this day in 1775. While Veterans Day is observed on November 11th, the few and the proud celebrate November 10th as their own birthday. From your AveMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. It's been a year since Proposal 3 passed in Michigan and placed abortion into the state constitution. That didn't stop more than 3,000 pro-lifers from showing up at uh, Wednesday's March for Life in Lansing. Uh, our friend and colleague Chuck Gatica was there to emcee the event and tell us how it went. Chuck is uh, well-known for 40 years as a broadcaster in Detroit media, mostly with Channel 4 WDIV where he worked as an anchor and meteorologist. He's the winner of multiple Emmys, uh, was awarded the prestigious Silver Circle Award for Broadcast Excellence by the National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences. He's a Mayo Clinic-trained wellness coach and holds a certificate in second-half significance from Pepperdine University and the Halftime Institute. Chuck, thanks so much for taking the time to be with me. Oh, sure thing, Al. Thank you. So you emceed this March for Life there, and... uh, People I've talked to said that clearly uh, I've heard between three and four thousand people. The newspapers yeah. are reporting hundreds. Tell me what you saw. Yeah, some some of the headlines said hundreds. It was ironic to me that I woke up the next morning and um, you know yesterday and I saw these headlines. One of them was from Detroit Catholic, said thousands gathered. One was from. Lansing State Journal, and it said hundreds gathered. Now, to be fair, you know, 3,500 is still hundreds if that's the way you count it. But I think, uh, you know, the dilemma here is maybe media bias. Maybe it's just a mistake. Uh, What I do know is this. I don't have an actual count, but I know that 80 buses, maybe 80 to 84 buses, uh, busloads of people showed up, and Mm -hmm. that includes teens. And then, you know, you can tell the difference because they were coming in school buses and Guys like you and me are coming in a motor coach. But, you know, <laughs> it was a cold, rainy start to the day, and it was not the best of all weather. And right. to get three to maybe almost 4,000 people out, uh, and, of course, many came in their own cars, uh, I think was quite a feat, and it goes to show that uh, people are still willing to stand for life. Yeah. It's a, yeah. It, we have a, it's a passion, an issue uh, of passion for many people, it, an issue of deep, deep commitment um, all of us at one time uh, were unborn children. And so uh, in a certain way that when we talk about protecting unborn life, we're really talking about protecting our kind. Uh, we were right. once <laughs> as that unborn yeah. child was. Um, yeah. Tell me a little bit about the, uh, the, the lineup 
activities, speakers? Uh, what happened? Well, it was opened in prayer by Bishop Boyer from the Lansing Diocese, which was wonderful. Uh, and then it was closed by uh, Pastor uh, Chris Brooks from Woodside Bible. So there was an ecumenical nature to it to mm-hmm. begin with. Uh, and end with, frankly. And in between, I'm sure you've talked to Jeannie Mancini from the March for Life mm-hmm. in D.C., from the yep. National Office. Yep. She was there in person. Uh, there were a few keynote speakers that had personal experience, either with uh, adoption, foster care. Somebody had fostered, I mean, the numbers were astounding, 35 kids, and of that, four were adopted. And then she had three of her own biological children. Uh, another young woman stepped forward who spoke, who had literally been through five abortions, and she now counsels women uh, from a post-abortive standpoint of finding peace and, and love in Jesus, and it was, a, it was an amazing morning. The rain had kind of stopped as we all gathered, and so there were still a lot of umbrellas, but the sea of people was impressive, and Right to Life of Michigan was obviously involved uh, and planned it, so there were, you know, some tents erected, but basically the stalwarts came down, uh, there were giant signs that I saw that said, you know, youpers for life, so I know that we had people come down from the UP. Wow, that's a long drive. Michigan. Yeah, it sure was. Uh, Southeast Michigan was well represented, uh, as was Grand Rapids, even mid-state, the sum. So this was a statewide effort, and to be honest, as my wife Susan and I were driving there, uh, maybe the 9 o'clock hour Wednesday morning, uh, it was pouring. Yeah. from Southeast Michigan to Lansing. And I said to her, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> this is going to be very interesting. <laughs> right. It was 34 degrees on the car thermometer, Al. Wow. It was raw. It was really raw. Uh, and so could maybe, if it would have been yesterday, the next day, uh, could it have been with blue sky and sunshine, 5,000? Maybe. I don't know. But yeah. for the first one out, uh, I was impressed. Yeah, no, that's great. That's a wonderful, wonderful turnout. Uh you know, let me ask you, you spent 40 years as a broadcaster in, you know, mainstream media. Uh, yeah. Just, uh, what's, how's the abortion issue handled in the newsroom normally? Well, I think it's handled in ways that other issues like it may be handled. There's a uniqueness to it, but it's a, uh, it's become a very political issue, obviously. So I think that's a dilemma. There are, uh, there, you know, I think the, the side, the pro-choice side, has now been very wise in trying to paint with a brush. If you're pro-life, you're anti-something, you're anti-abortion. Right. And I think it's a use of words that uh, that I see permeate articles that I'll see in what we may consider more liberal press. And so it doesn't mean that you're anti, it just means that you want to stand for that pre-born child. Right. And so I think that it's an argument that does... It's complicated because there's the basic argument uh, of life, and then you've got other issues that weave in there in our woke culture, which these issues all get lumped together. Uh, Certain TV stations and probably newspapers and radio alike will want to capitulate to the culture on an issue because that makes them seem uh, hip. And at the same time, we've got to remember that while they may want to portray themselves as unbiased, uh, they're all trying to go out every night, and uh, I'll just speak to television news. They're trying to get the most viewers, and, and I'm being very direct here about this. I don't know how much of it is planned, really, but they're trying not to upset everybody because they need everybody of all persuasion. Right. So right. they tend to be unbiased in that sense, but that's a business decision. That's not 
what's right and wrong. And so I think when I see uh, headlines, in this case, that hundreds showed up to me immediately, that jumps off the page as media bias. And I think there is bias. Yeah, yeah. I, I do, too. I, I, I've watched this for, well, let's say yeah, 40 years now, I guess, uh, since I started getting active. And I was always uh, aware, I've been to a lot of these e- events, and uh, we've almost always thought that the mainstream press diminished uh, the numbers, and mm-hmm. that um, now I know our side has sometimes been uh, has been exa- has exaggerated numbers too. I I know that that always happens yeah. with activists, yeah. but I I don't think that um, I I can't say that that's been uh, characteristic uh, of our side. Uh, but I I've always thought that whether it was in in D.C. With various, I can remember one uh, large. Uh, it wasn't the annual March for Life in Washington D.C. This was a special spring march that um, uh, James Dobson and um, uh, others had put together, and th- they there was a lot of dispute over the size of of that crowd. It was huge. I had mm-hmm. it was so big I had no way of really calculating it. I know that yeah. uh, Dobson said seven hundred thousand. You know, and then uh, it was reported that it was something like a hundred thousand. Yeah, you know, just I don't know how you can get, <laughs> I don't know how you can get that kind of discrepancy. Um, well, you know, back in the day, you know, you know, I was part of the Thanksgiving Day Parade in Detroit. Yeah, twenty five years I covered that, and I know what they used to do. I don't know what they do now. When you hear the stat, well, there are a million people on Woodward Avenue, and literally they would fly by chopper. They would have an acetate grid. Yeah. Probably now there's something more high-tech, but they would look down at crowds and they would put this grid with a bunch of little graph paper lines on it, and that would tell you, well, there's there's 5,000. Then they'd look and there's 5,000. So they're kind of mapping it out because nobody's standing around with a clicker, you know, <laughs> like, like you're going to the movies. Right. So right. That's, it, it is, uh, to be fair, for both sides, it is a difficult thing to come up with these numbers. But knowing what I know... If we had 80 busloads, and, you know, the motor coaches can hold, you know, from going to Israel and other places, that can hold up to 50. But let's just say each bus had 30. Yeah. Uh, that's 2,400 people right by themselves. Yeah. And, and that just tells me somebody didn't do their homework, didn't make a call, because someone would have just said, listen, the underpinnings were 80 busloads of people, and that's at least 2,400, 2,500. And then if another 500 showed up, well, now you're at 3,000. Well, that's about the best estimating I could imagine, based on even what I know by using a grid, and nobody was flying a chopper over us. You know? Right, right, right. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree. I, I mentioned that one uh, spring uh, march that we had in D.C. Yeah. Somewhere around, uh, I can't remember, 89, 90, 91, right around there. But I remember the capital, capital City Police used to give the numbers, and there was so oh, much yeah. controversy that year that the Capitol Police stopped. <laughs> they they stopped giving yeah. numbers out after that, uh, regardless of who was marching and who was present. So it, it uh, no doubt it was a it was a problem for everybody uh, to get those numbers straight. Um, it sounds it sounds to me if people were showing up in that kind of weather, um, there had to be a lot of exuberance, uh, and yet we know that pro life movement has had a number of serious setbacks uh, since the Dobbs yeah. decision. Um, how would you characterize the mood of people? 
the mood was up. It was uh, a lot of cheering crowds uh, at times for each of the speakers. The one thing that I really noticed that uh, I was impressed by, you know, I'm coming up in between each speaker. I welcomed everybody, and then I bring on the next person and read their bio and bring them up as any MC would. And I kept looking out at the crowd uh, gathered there from the Capitol steps, which is where the podium was with the mic, uh, where I was. And I kept looking at the crowd. I never saw groups. I, I didn't even see individuals peeling off to whether it was to go find a porta potty or just to find a warm spot. People came. Well, we're, we're Michiganders. We're hardy people. They came ready for the weather. Uh, they weren't leaving. There was probably an hour of discussion. There was worship music leading in, you know, as you walked up, there were a few announcements. And then the speakers came up and legislators, some of our brave legislators stood up and they said a few things. And these were people that have, you know, run these bills right up to the governor's office with $20 million in provisions for uh, various life issues. And each one of them got vetoed. I mean, I think the crowd came ready to be uplifted and also ready to show support, at least with their voices. But there was cheering, uh, there were flags and signs, and um, I, it was everything you would have expected. And if the weather again would have been sunny and 55 instead of 34 and rainy, I think it would have been a little different situation. Yeah. But it's the first, maybe if maybe of forever. Yeah. And um, good, good for the state and good for Right to Life Michigan with, you know, a, a, the next one will be easier to get the word out because they've now got something to point to. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Chuck, thanks so much. I'm glad you were there. I'm glad you emceed it. Uh, and I'm glad you're able to spend time with me today talking about it. Thanks so much. Good to talk to you, Al. God bless. Thank you. Chuck Gatica. Uh, Chuck was there as the MC for the Michigan March for Life. That's our first Michigan March for Life. I'm Al Cresto. The wisdom of Mother Angelica. You remember the time I said on the air, go to confession. And when you're done, go out and have a big ice cream soda. Celebrate. And a man wrote to me, he said, you know, I hadn't gone to confession in 30 years. Do you mind if I went and had a pizza? <laughs> I said, oh, have 20 pizzas. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popchuk. Do you have a hard time getting your kids to open up? Maybe it's time to take a different approach. Kids, and especially teens, have a hard time with we-need-to-talk times. They tend to be afraid that they're going to be judged or criticized or lectured, so they shut down before they've even had a chance to open up. On the other hand, kids are much more likely to open up if you're spending time together on some activity. Fixing the car, baking cookies, shopping, taking a walk. It really doesn't matter so much what you're doing. It matters that you're creating the space you need for conversations to happen naturally. That's why taking time for family talk rituals is an important part of Catholic family life. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. Maybe you've been hearing a lot about the need to make a spiritual communion while participating from home in a live-streamed or broadcast Mass. Maybe you've even prayed the prayer of spiritual communion. 
Spiritual communion is a concept that goes all the way back to the 4th century. It flourished in the Eastern Church and gradually moved west. Spiritual communion stresses the transcendence of God, where we unite our desires, intentions, and loves with the holy sacrifice of the Mass and the consecration of the Eucharist at the altar. Jesus, I embrace you and unite myself wholly to you. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and his gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Back in 2008, on the anniversary of Kristallnacht, uh, the terrible night in Germany, 1938, which destroyed 267 synagogues, rounded up 30,000 Jewish men for concentration camps, and destroyed many, many Jewish businesses. I spoke with Mitchell Bard, executive director of the American-Israeli Cooperative Enterprise and director of the Jewish Virtual Library. He's authored many books, including an oral history of Kristallnacht, called 48 Hours of Kristallnacht. Uh, He's also put together the complete Holocaust history. I wanted to go back to my conversation with him and also remind you that Catholics were not entirely silent. In the United States, for instance, on November 16th, roughly a week after Kristallnacht, Catholic University of America brought together several prominent Catholics to protest the Nazi actions against uh, Jews. Uh, Those speakers included Archbishop Murray of San Francisco, Archbishop Ireton of Richmond, Bishop Gannon of Erie, and former Governor of New York, Al Smith. It was uh, a protest carried on both CBS and NBC radio. And you can even listen to a clip of it if you go to the uh, Commonweal website. Let's uh, get on, though, to my conversation with Mitchell Bard. Mitchell, it's good to have you back. Thanks. Always good to be with you. What do we hear in the oral histories that we don't usually get by reading, uh, you know, an encyclopedia description? 
Well, it's the personal horror, the personal witness of the terrible things that happened that night. Too often, the Holocaust, as horrible as it comes across, is very dry and statistical. And until you read the, the actual personal experiences, especially of people who were children at the time, you can't fully comprehend, I think, the magnitude of the horrors of those times. Where did you uh, call your memories here? Well, the vast majority of them were already recorded in a variety of different places, most of which never had been published. Uh, the largest body of them came from the interviews done by the Shoah Foundation, mm -hmm. where they uh, interviewed 50,000 survivors, and several thousand of them uh, experienced Kristallnacht, and there were several other accounts given in uh, memoirs and other archives in the Holocaust Museum and some other books that have been written. But there were many stories that I don't think have ever been told, and they're really quite uh, dramatic and frightening. By 1938, there was already concern, wasn't there? I mean, Jewish emigration began as early as 1933, I think. Well, after Hitler came to power, yeah. it didn't take long for the Nazis to begin to impose a variety of restrictive laws on the Jewish community. By the time of Kristallnacht, there was something on the order of 400 different regulations of different types meant to isolate the Jewish people, uh, to intimidate them, to encourage them to leave. But none of that was violent. They were all uh, legislative measures and it wasn't really until Kristallnacht that there was open attacks against Jewish individuals, their property, their synagogues. And what made it particularly striking was that it was in plain view of everyone, that every German knew and every Austrian knew what was going on. Many of them watched as the stormtroopers rampaged through the streets, through people's homes, and set fire to the synagogues, and some even participated in those activities. So it was the one time in the war when all of the people, the citizens, were a part of what was taking place and couldn't claim to uh, be ignorant and not to know. What was the pretext for this? Well, the main pretext, uh, and they didn't really need one, there was a desire to uh, teach the Jews a lesson anyway, but there was a case in which a young Jew who was living in Paris at the time was infuriated after the Nazis in October of 38 had deported his family along with uh, thousands of other Jews of Polish uh, descent to the Polish border and mistreated them there. And that uh, young man, after hearing what happened to his family, went to the German embassy in Paris with the intention of shooting the ambassador and basically shot the first diplomat he saw, which was a third secretary named uh, Vom Rath. And after that, the Nazis used that as a rallying point for, quote-unquote, expressing the anger of the German people. Wow. And uh, Joseph Goebbels, the propaganda minister, was the principal instigator of this. So were there, are there written orders that we have been able to discover today? or did Yes, they there were definitely orders given. Yeah. Some, of the, some of the instructions were oral. Uh, we don't have, as in the case of the Holocaust in general, a order directly from Hitler. We just know right. that he was right. there at the time. 
that he spoke to Goebbels and that, by all accounts, uh, was aware of what was planned. There are orders uh, in my book, 48 Hours of Kristallnacht, in the appendix. We have the actual orders that went out for some of the attacks. And a lot of it was just a kind of wink and a nod where the Nazi stormtroopers knew that this is what they were supposed to do and no one was going to stop them. Uh, How well integrated into Jewish and Austrian society were Jews? Were there separatist communities? In other words, if I'm there November 9th, what am I going to see? Or is it something that it's only taking place in Jewish communities? No, the Jews were a part of mainstream Mainstream German and Austrian societies. In fact, they were the elite in many of the societies. They were doctors, lawyers, they were prominent uh, scientists, uh, academics, but through the measures that the Nazis implemented over the years prior to and then immediately after Kristallnacht, they were gradually uh, stripped of their job, thrown out of universities, Uh, their properties were Aryanized, that is, taken over by Mm -hmm. the state. But up until November 8th, 9th, 10th, uh, many of these people still had prominent positions. Uh, they owned major department stores and other businesses, and so they were the neighbors. They okay. were the merchants. They were people who everyday Germans and Austrians uh, worked with every day and uh, who frequented their businesses and stores. Would it have been immediately clear that it was Jews... Jewish businesses that were being targeted. Yeah, there was no question that uh, there were plenty of uh, examples of things being written on the stores, Jews out. Mm -hmm. Uh, There were towns where the Jews were marched through the streets uh, with signs on their, uh, on their, around their necks and uh, chants against them being forced to run through gauntlets. There were uh, stores that were clearly known to be owned by Jews and the fact that uh, synagogues everywhere, even in small towns where there were few Jews left, were being set on fire. The holy relics, the Torah scrolls, uh, the prayer books would be set on fire, sometimes thrown out into the streets, and children would stomp on them. It was something that was clearly aimed solely at the Jewish people. So, So then, after this event, what is the public rationale for it? Does Hitler say, uh, well, you know, we can't contain the wrath of the uh, German people? That was basically the line of the government. Yeah. That was the propaganda line. Was yeah. the, this was the popular yeah. anger yeah. of the people. We can't stop this. And uh, the reality was that very few Germans were prepared to stand up and to protest or to protect Jews. 48 Hours of Kristallnacht, I do have uh, a chapter just talking about some of the instances where people uh, did protect Jews and did stand up, but with the exception of a, a couple of uh, church leaders, uh, the church was silent, uh, other German institutions were silent, uh, you had uh, heroic gestures by people like the boxing champion Max Schmeling, yeah, who yeah. hit some Jews in his home for several days. Uh, so those were the exception, unfortunately, the vast majority of the people saw what the German state was capable of and how it was able to intimidate those who uh, stood up against it. But again, the, the people who showed courage and had the moral backbone to take some steps, uh, in some cases, made a difference. There was a German uh, 
policeman, for example, who told his wife he was going out to prevent a terrible crime from being committed, and he took his gun and stood in front of the synagogue in his town, basically warded off the uh, mobs from and prevented them from destroying that synagogue. Wow. So resistance was not impossible. It wasn't impossible, but it uh, was very rare. Yeah. And uh, this was the case throughout uh, the period of the Nazis, that we know that even during the Holocaust there were cases where people uh, refused to follow orders to kill Jews and nothing happened to them. But there was always this perception that that was not something that they could do. Uh, how, how did... Uh, well, let's start with children, or parents and children. How did parents speak to their children on November 11th or November 10th? Well, there was not a lot they could say to them. Uh, in some in cases, there was no father or brother or uncle to speak to them because 30,000 men were arrested and sent to concentration camps. Uh, many of the children and the wives didn't know where their loved ones were taken, and mm -hmm. some didn't return for several weeks or months. Or they, they often had to be ransomed uh, to get out of camps. Uh, there was uh, not a lot you could tell a child who would watch as their uh, house was ransacked, uh, all of their possessions uh, thrown out the window, uh, their parents thrown down the stairs and beaten. It was something that was incomprehensible to a child. Hmm. The arrests, there were many arrests made over those two days? That's right. Uh, about 30,000 men were sent to concentration camps. Others were arrested and released before being sent to a camp. And what was the pretense there? I mean, the, you know, I, I mean, I understand the, the racial hatred, but I'm saying usually there's a, you know, you try to come up with, the, the, the government tries to come up with some kind of reason why these particular people were arrested on this particular night. Well, they didn't explain it to anyone, okay. but the, the reason primarily was twofold. One was to try to scare the Jews and encourage them to leave. At this point, the camps were not designed as extermination centers. They, there were a number of people who died, and they were horrible places, but the main intent of the Nazis at that time was to encourage Jews to leave Germany and Austria. The other purpose was basically to steal their possessions, where they would either outright take the businesses and property that belonged to the Jews they arrested, or they would uh, force the Jews to sell at uh, bargain basement prices to them or otherwise uh, uh, ransom their possessions. Hmm. Mitchell, can you hang on for a little while? Sure, thanks. My guest, Dr. Mitchell Bard, 48 Hours of Kristallnacht, Night of Destruction, Dawn of the Holocaust, and Oral History. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. 
underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you feel as though life is flying past you? Are you desperate for a way to find moments of peace and quiet? Lord, teach me to pray. The free Ignatian prayer series will open your heart to His voice, to the peace you are seeking and the only love that fulfills the human heart, Jesus. God is calling you to true joy, knowing Jesus personally. Lord Teach Me to Pray is free. Go to lordteachmetopray.com, click on the red box, order the Lord Teach Me to Pray series now. Go to lordteachmetopray.com. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. This program is brought to you by the following nonprofit underwriter. Finding health care for yourself and your family can be isolating and confusing. That's why the Catholic Health Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering Christ-centered health sharing for individuals and families, along with new wellness services to help heal and restore your whole person, spirit, mind, and body. Visit cmfcuro.com to find out more. That's cmfcuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. What is catechesis and why do we care? The job of catechesis is to reveal all the joy as well as the demands of the way of Christ, says the Catholic Catechism. The way of Christ is summed up in the catechesis of the Beatitudes. Jesus gave us the eight Beatitudes in his Sermon on the Mount. The Catholic Catechism tells us this teaching is the only path that leads to the eternal Beatitude, happiness, for which the human heart longs. The catechesis of sin and forgiveness challenges us. Unless man acknowledges that he is a sinner, states the catechism, he cannot know the truth about himself, which is a condition for acting justly, and without the offer of forgiveness, man could not bear the truth. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Ciao amici, Teresa Tamio here. If you're looking for something inspiring to give to someone this Christmas season, or maybe just a little stocking stuffer for yourself, make sure to check out the Ave Maria Radio online store. Plenty of books are sale to teach, inspire, and renew your connection with God. Speaking of sales, my book, Everything's Coming Up Rosie, is 25% off this month while supplies last. So go ahead over to AveMariaRadio.net and click on the bookstore. Happy shopping! I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. No, I didn't want to give up sin. I mean, the reason we sin is because sin is fun. But it's, it's self-love sin. But it's amazing with God's grace how easy trying to not sin it really is. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit CatholicsComeHome.org today. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta, with me Dr. Mitchell Bard, 48 hours of Kristallnacht, night of destruction, dawn of the Holocaust, the oral history. How widespread was the news of Kristallnacht? In other words, today it would be, CNN would be reporting it, everybody would see it. Did people believe these were local incidents, 
or were they aware that this was uh, you know, a nationwide effort? This was something that uh, was well known inside and outside of uh, the Third Reich. Inside, uh, the Nazis made no secret. They published in their party papers exactly what had happened, uh, although with their own uh, spin on it. But the international press also published what had happened, unlike mm-hmm. what you sometimes read about uh, during the Holocaust, that uh, the world didn't know or that the right. press didn't publish it. This was on the front page of world newspapers. Okay. Uh, the New York Times had a front page story. Uh, the British press all had uh, prominent coverage. Over a thousand editorials were written criticizing the Nazis. So there was no secret about what had happened. In fact, polls were taken where 94% of Americans said they disapproved of the Nazi treatment of Jews. Did the persecution of the Jews ever reach this level of public awareness uh, again until after the war? Probably this was the height of it until much later. That after one of the lessons of what happened from all of the publicity was that the Nazis learned that they should hide what they were doing. Yeah. And that was yeah. part of the reason for the more uh, secretive way that they carried out the final solution. But for me, one of the most uh, shocking and horrifying aspects of the whole story is the failure of the world to react after it learned what happened. That is, once they saw what Hitler was capable of doing, their unwillingness to act hmm. uh, was, I think, what ultimately allowed Hitler to conclude no one would stop Nobody him later. Stop. Yeah, And uh, there was a lot that could have been done without going to war against the Germans, that simply by opening the gates to immigrants, they could have saved uh, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, especially children. Mm-hmm. The... U.S. Senate was prepared to pass legislation to allow 20,000 Jewish children into the United States. Uh, Great Britain, Belgium, Holland took about 10,000 Jewish children, but the United States ended up uh, rejecting that legislation. The it's a very ugly, that's a very ugly moment in American it, it, history. It was, and I think uh, President Roosevelt uh, deserves a lot of the blame, mm-hmm. but he was reflecting the popular will. Yeah. He said a moment ago, 94% uh, condemned Nazi treatment of Jews, but 72% of the public opposed letting large numbers into the United States, and about two-thirds opposed that legislation to bring children in on an emergency basis. Yeah. And there were a variety One was we were just coming out of the Great Depression. There was a lot of concern about letting immigrants into the country and how that would impact the economic recovery. There was a certain degree of xenophobia. Uh, There was a significant amount of anti-Semitism at the time. And in the case of the legislation specifically, uh, the argument that would also be used by the State Department later was we don't want to treat Jews uh, differently from the rest. We don't want to single them out as special. Uh, they were afraid that if they let uh, children in, that eventually parents would want to come in, too. They had a variety of different excuses, and the end result was it condemned uh, 
hundreds of thousands of people to death. After there's a huge event like this, the world is aware of it, editorials are written, there are photographs. How does an event like this get off the radar? In other words, you would say to yourself, if Hitler's willing and capable of doing this, obviously he has uh, malicious designs for the future of this people. Uh, oh, it's even worse, Al, uh, because he explicitly says in January 39 that he basically plans to exterminate the Jewish people. Uh, in his major speech to celebrate his uh, the anniversary of coming to power in 33 or 32, uh, he gives a, a speech before the Reichstag to uh, say that he's prepared to destroy the Jewish people. And his foreign ministry, foreign minister uh, said at the time that this was the beginning of uh, the solution to the Jewish problem. So there was really little doubt about what Hitler intended, but people uh, weren't willing to believe even after they saw it with their own eyes. Was it an imaginative problem? I mean, I... You know, I'm far removed from it myself. I'm on this side of the event, but at the same time, I—I I mean, today we're so we're fairly sensitized. I think when we hear words that sound genocidal, there's some kind of action taken, at least in Europe and North. Well, and South I'm not America. sure that we have learned. We're we're being tested at this very moment by the president of Iran. Uh, a lot of people don't like the yeah. notion of comparing him to Hitler, but he is using the same kind of terminology yeah, that's about that's threatening true. to destroy the Jewish people, to to uh, destroy Israel. And uh, the question before the world now is, are we going to do anything about it? Mm-hmm. Are we going to allow him to obtain a nuclear weapon that will allow him to carry out his threat? Yeah. And there are a lot of people who want to dismiss it as just rhetoric. Well, actually, I mean... The, the, That's the lesson we, you know, a lot of us take, and I certainly take from yeah. uh, history of World War II. I, I, and, of course, if, if Iran was filled with uh, Jews, we'd be more concerned, though. The question I have related to this, though, is the continued publication of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, the extraordinary anti-Semitism... I mean, anti-Semitism runs thick at prestigious universities in the Middle East. Well, uh, the uh, Protocols is a bestseller in the Middle East. Yeah. Uh, so I, I have someone like uh, the president of Iran, again, who denies that the Holocaust took place. You have him uh, expressing uh, elders of Zion-type views. And it's uh, a very widespread phenomenon in the Middle East that I think has shaped whole generations of Arab and Muslim views towards right. Jews. See, that, now, my first thought is, yeah, that's right. Uh, but it seems very far away. It's not European. <laughs> if you know what I'm saying, it just seems far away. Did Americans feel the same kind of distance from Germans that I might feel from Egyptians? Well, I think uh, there's certain, uh, certainly much closer affinity between uh, Americans and other Western societies than perhaps between American and Eastern societies. Yeah. Uh, there, uh, 
I think was uh, a lot more affinity because so many German people of German descent uh, lived in the United States and people from other parts of Europe who lived in the United States. So I don't think it was so remote, but we were at that time very inward looking. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, it's something that you worry about today when you have uh, political officials arguing that we need to withdraw from the world, that we shouldn't uh, be as active internationally, that we shouldn't be an international policeman or shouldn't stand up for the uh, downtrodden or the so it's uh, it's a lesson that still needs to be learned and that's one of the reasons I wrote 48 hours of Kristallnacht is I wanted to remind people of what happened and what can happen when good people allow evil to happen yeah yeah if our ears uh, were not able to hear the cries in 1938 uh, when we were talking about uh, an America that had many people of German descent, how much more difficult is it to hear it today, hear those cries today, when the threats are coming from societies and peoples that we feel less cultural compatibility with? I think uh, it also is a, a reminder, though, that uh, some of those cultures have people who have very radical views towards us and yeah. mean us yeah. ill. Yeah. Uh, by no means all of them, and it's not necessarily a purely cultural or religious uh, element of those societies, but there are people who mean us ill and that uh, we have to be prepared to understand that's their intent and to stand up against it. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I agree. It's just... I still think in light of all that's been published and written on matters of this sort since uh, 2001, that many Americans uh, don't feel that much more sensitized to the threat that's out there. It's a shame. I think we have short memories. Uh, I think already people have forgotten 9-11. You heard at the time this was an unforgettable experience that would scar us forever. But I think many people have already forgotten. Yeah. And those threats still exist, and 48 Hours of Kristallnacht is designed to remind us of them. Well, Mitchell, thanks so much. We'll have the book in the bookstore, and we'll recommend it. Thanks very much. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Dr. Mitchell Baird, 48 Hours of Kristallnacht, Night of Destruction, Dawn of the Holocaust, an oral history. I'm Al Cresta. We need your help. Hello, I'm Marianne Koharski, Director of Pro-Life Across America. In my 30-plus years, I've never seen such a concerted attempt to silence our efforts and at a time when it's most needed. There's a powerful effort to prevent and block our pro-life messages. Our billboards, social media, and digital ads are all impacted. Unplanned pregnancies still happen. Our ads feature a hotline number connecting callers with more than 3,000 pregnancy support centers across America, offering alternatives to abortion, free ultrasound, and pregnancy help. Babies' lives are being saved. The need still exists. It really does. And Pro-Life Across America needs your help. To donate, please find us at ProLifeAcrossAmerica.org. Did you know I could suck my thumb before I was born? Yep, we all started small. 
Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. A conversation I had several years ago with uh, one of our listeners who wrote to me and said she was being challenged by a friend or a cousin or someone regarding the church and various teachings, especially on marriage and abortion and whatnot. And she said, I need the answers and I need them quickly because I want to quiet this person and shut them down. And I wrote her back and I said, I'm not going to give you the answers. I will give you some resources, such as the link to the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And I said, but you need to look these up and you need to read them over and you need to learn them because this is not going to be the last time that you're going to be challenged or questions about your faith. And what good is it if you're just barking answers to someone and you're not able to explain them charitably? This is a way we all should learn by doing the work ourselves. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern, on EWTN Radio. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. I thought I would take time to actually read a, one of these brief oral history testimonies uh, from Kristallnacht. It's from Gary uh, Matzdorf. He was an apprentice in Berlin. He said, I started my apprenticeship when I was 14 and a half in 1936. I learned a leather trade as a craftsman. Once a week, every apprentice had to go to trade school, and that was my day. In the morning, on the bus, I already noticed m- moving bands, uh, smashing stone windows, store windows, some others painting the word Jew on the window, and then the others would smash the windows. So I start, sort of crawled to the back of the bus, and I had to change over to a streetcar to get to the trade school. There was a fire in a backyard, and a courtyard, and a building. So I stopped and asked some people what was going on. There was no fire department. And someone said, oh, some Jew house is burning. Apparently, it was a small Orthodox synagogue. By watching that uh, for a moment, I was tardy in school. I was the only Jewish student in school, and books started flying toward me as I opened the door. So I closed the door again and just walked the corridor for a minute. I just stood there, stunned. When the door opened, the teacher came out and handed me the books and said, I had to do this for the class. And he said, get a hold of your father real quick and try to get out of Germany as quickly as possible. Terrible things are going to happen. Good luck. And that was it. I went downstairs to a phone booth, called home, but my father was already on the way to his office and mother didn't know anything about it. So I waited another half hour, 45 minutes, and called my dad in his office. He saw the same thing and he said, call me back in about an hour. I'll see if I can make some arrangements, which I did. In the meantime, my father got a hold of a friend of his who was not Jewish, and he was a customer as well, and made some arrangements. He said, meet me at a certain subway station, and then we'll discuss where we're going to go. He said he doesn't want to mention anything over the phone. So we met, and we rode the subway all day long. When we saw somebody that looked like Gestapo, the typical short-cropped haircut look, we got off the train, walked over to the other side, and went in the other direction. Fortunately, we were never caught during that day, and since it was November, it got dark early. Then we finally slipped into his friend's apartment, which was right in the center of the city, and we stayed there for two weeks. I mean, just imagine that, a 14, 15-year-old boy going through that with his father. Um, This was a Kristallnacht, again, November 9th, 10th, 1938, when... uh, Again, Nazi officials uh, organized this destruction of Jewish synagogues 
Jewish businesses, and in fact 30,000 Jewish men sent to a concentration camp. These historical moments are frequently lost, especially on the next generation here. Many people have no sense. Uh, The Second World War, Hitler, the Holocaust, are considered ancient history. Catholics, though, have a good, strong historical memory, just like the Jews. We know we are a people who believe God operates in history, and that's why we remember. That's why we do the Eucharist, in remembrance of Calvary. So it's up to us uh, at just the natural level, not even at the supernatural level, at the natural level to urge our fellow citizens to develop some sort of historical memory, historical consciousness. That's the only way we can protect against all the winds of doctrine which are flowing and all the political forces that can try to move us to the right or to the left. Our responsibility as Catholics is to not only proclaim the gospel, but also to strengthen the good things that remain in our culture. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Thank you for being with me on this Veterans Day. We're going to take the next hour to, well, in recognition of the great sacrifice of so many uh, American servicemen, we're going to focus in on the Great War, World War I, which was the beginning of what we call Veterans Day today. Uh, the armistice that ended World War I was signed on November 11th, 1918. And eventually, Armistice Day came to be known as Veterans Day. Uh, it was extended to include veterans of other wars. So in the United States, we've got three days that commemorate the sacrifice of uh, servicemen. We've got Memorial Day, of course, and then Veterans Day or Armistice Day slash Veterans Day, and we have Armed Forces Day. So we're going to take time in this hour to remember the Great War. With me, Dr. Regis Martin, a conversation I had with him a while back, which I thought he did a brilliant job in a piece that he wrote for Crisis Magazine. Uh, the War to End All Wars. It was a meditation on the efforts of Pope Benedict XV, the myth of progress that led up to the war, the failure of Christian leaders to resolve their national differences on a Christian basis. And then we're going to talk with Harry Crocker, a very prolific uh, writer and great communicator. We're going to talk to Harry about the military history of the United States. He wrote a book called The Yanks Are Coming, and we're going to take time with him. Harry's work has appeared in National Review, American Spectator, Washington Times. But let me tell you about uh, Regis. Uh, Dr. Martin has been a professor of dogmatic and systematic theology at Franciscan University. He's the author of several books, including The Last Things, Death, Judgment, Hell, and Heaven, 
And as I said, this particular article, The War to End All Wars, and Regis, it's great to have you back with me. I'm honored to uh, to be on the show. First World War. What got your attention? Well, I mean, in general, I was sort of casting about for some sort of theme I, I could develop for a piece. And uh, the centenary was uh, was coming around, uh, August uh, of 1914. Uh, the whole thing uh, was set in motion. And uh, I decided, well, I need to remember this event, not to celebrate it, but to observe uh, with some solemnity what exactly happened and, and why was it so catastrophic. Mm-hmm. And certainly in terms of the sheer physical numbers, 16 million dead uh, is is nothing to scoff about, and about half were not even combatants. So the scale of human suffering was, was immense. Had Christian Europe ever seen anything of that scale before? No, no, it was unprecedented. Uh, I mean, thanks to the technologization of of war, Mm -hmm. uh, it became uh, an easy matter to massacre great numbers of people, and, and apparently to no real purpose. Well, that's Christians slaughtering each other. Yeah, because these were Christian nations. I mean, uh, in, in, in formally Christian nations. Um, I mean, constitutionally and uh, aristocratically and monarchically, they were Christian yeah. nations. And they seemed to go about this as though there wasn't some great contradiction in, in their in their faith. I, how did you make sense of that? I, I don't know that you can. It, it's a, a kind of absurdity on, on a systemic and uh, global uh, uh, stage. Uh, you know, uh, I keep thinking of the line from Yeats's poem, The Second Coming, about the best lack all conviction while the worst are full of passionate intensity. There were a lot of good people, but they were bereft of conviction. I, I think their faith had been hollowed out. It was pretty nominal affair because they they certainly discarded it quickly enough when they took up arms uh, with with the intention of of shooting as many of their christian neighbors as they could they just wiped out the whole populations i don't know that france has ever recovered from uh, the carnage of of the great war and ironically it was uh, it was dubbed uh, the war to end all wars yes Yes, yes. Do you see it uh, as the? Do you see World War One and World War Two as really the same war, just co- connected by an armistice of twenty years? Yeah, interrupted by you know twenty years of sleepwalking from one to the other, a continuous mm-hmm. yeah. uh, global conf- you know conflagration. I mean, the fact that we title uh, the wars one and two suggests uh, a certain narrative continuity. And and the peace uh, that uh, was imposed by Versailles was a vindictive affair, which right. I think sort of kept alive the demon of uh, of, of revenge. Uh, the Germans, I, I think, were, were punished in a disproportionate way, and, and so guys like Hitler were easily uh, incensed and... Uh, fired up and able to exploit the masses to try and program another war to get even. Mm. Did it spawn, uh, I would imagine an event like that would spawn a great deal of literature and reflection afterwards? Yeah, I mean, that, that's that's one of the, the ironies of, of history and literature. Somebody asked Walker Percy once, uh, why were there so many great Southern writers? And he answered, that because we lost the war. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
And in a way, that's where literature is, is born, you know, in the ashes of the defeated. Uh, they have something to write about, uh, their memory. I, I think it was uh, the Italian poet Pavese who described memory as a passion repeated. And you sort of rework the material of the war in some imaginative form to give it shape, to try to impose some order. Mm -hmm. That certainly is what Hemingway did. And also to express uh, so that, the dissolution. Is that farewell to arms? A farewell to arms, mm -hmm. yeah. He was an ambulance driver uh, in the First World War. He didn't see any action, but he had been, he had been wounded. Mm -hmm. uh, so indirectly, he would be a victim of, of this, uh, this violence. Where was the Catholic Church in all this? I mean, that's one of, one of the strengths of Catholicism, is that we're transnational. Um, you know, I, I, the Church is meant to be transcend the nation-state, and the Church is often looked to as a, a, an honest broker for peace. Uh, what was the Church doing at that time? Yeah, I was, I was at some pains, I, I think, in the piece I wrote to remind the reader that uh, there were voices uh, that were awakened by this, this catastrophe, and uh, the Church herself uh, was among those voices. She did not uh, remain silent. She was mobilized, uh, and in particular uh, by two very impressive, heroic vicars of Christ, uh, Pope St. Pius X, who, alas, uh, did not survive the first month of the war, but he was determined to end it uh, practically on the day it begun, and he refused uh, sort of ostentatiously uh, to bless the armaments of Austria and mm -hmm. insisted on the absolute impartiality of, of the Holy See. The Church would not take sides. She uh, what sort of loathed both sets of belligerents uh, and and did not tire of commending peace uh, at almost any terms uh, to uh, both sides so that they would lay down their arms and stop the senseless killing. But it was really his successor, Benedict the Fifteenth. Uh, I, I describe him as the real protagonist of peace, who made repeated concerted efforts uh, to bring uh, the violence to an end, appealing you know, to what uh, Abraham Lincoln would call the better angels of our natures, to try and, and find a, a road that might credibly lead to peace. Mm. He even uh, exhorted uh, both sides to lay down their arms during the Christmas season, at least during the time, he said, while the angels sang. Uh, maybe mm. you could stop throwing bombs at mm. one another. And the politicians and the generals, uh, they refused. But informally, along the Western Front, which stretched over 400 miles from Switzerland to the Channel, along that, that endless uh, stretch of, of barbed wire and bombs, uh, the belligerents uh, uh, had informal truces and reprieves, and they would set up Christmas lights, uh, songs. They even had uh, soccer games that were played inside uh, uh, this, this terrible area of death. And then it all ended. I mean, despite exchanging gifts on Christmas Day, as soon as uh, the truce was lifted, uh, the guns uh, had begun in wow. earnest. And it would take another three or four years before they would finally fall silent. How did the participants in the war see 
the point of battle. I mean, I know there was a lot of, uh, you know, a celebration of the martial arts uh, and the, the virtues of um, manhood uh, celebrated prior to the war, but it's hard to believe that uh, you, you engage in that degree of killing for, for, you know, for its glory. I, I think, yeah, I think a sort of lethal combination of uh, Prussian militarism, that would be on on the side of the Axis powers, Germany and Austria, you know, the, the uh, extolling of the martial arts, heroism, the Spartan ideal, uh, fighting uh, and killing. But alongside that, you have this mindless loyalty on the part of the Allies. You know, the, 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 uh, the foot soldier uh, in the trenches would almost mindlessly obey and, 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 and submit to any order. And, and of course, the generals were, were determined uh, to maximize the bloodletting. I mean, I think of the Battle of Verdun that lasted almost a year and uh, nothing happened. I mean, half a million men were killed, uh, and yet the battle lines remained uh, essentially undisturbed. And, and nobody thought that this absurdity, uh, you know, should end. I mean, at first, everybody sort of exuberantly predicted that the war would be over by Christmas, we'll be home, and right. we'll celebrate our victory. But there were four Christmases before the end uh, was in sight, and there was no victory. Uh, nobody won. Everybody lost. What did the uh, generals, uh, the monarchs, uh, the leaders imagine that they were fighting for? Yeah. Well, you know, if, if you read Hemingway, uh, you find that whatever they were fighting for, uh, honor, glory, the nation, state, courage, those hallowed uh, concepts, they were rendered obscene, as he puts it, in uh, a farewell to arms alongside the names of villages where men died, the numbers of the roads, the rivers, the regiments, the dates, those alone are real and meaningful. Everything else is an abstraction, and, and for that reason, obscene, because what we're talking about uh, are human beings, life. The generals did not have to die, but uh, the soldiers they sent into battle certainly did die. And uh, I, I recall... Uh, the line from the Roman poet Pindar, who reminds us that war is sweet only to those who do not know it. Yeah. You can glamorize and sentimentalize, romanticize conflict if you don't have to engage in it yourself. Yeah. From the safety of, uh, of the front office, you can deploy these troops as if they were just ciphers on, on, a, on a game board. Uh, and and that, that removal, that abstraction, I think allows in part the war to go on and on and on. It has a certain inertial forward movement of its own. Once it's set in motion, it's difficult to arrest that beast, that juggernaut. So I, I would say that nationalism, patriotism, misplaced, perverted, uh, had a large part to play uh, in starting the war and making it go on uh, uh, ad nauseum, ad infinitum. But the other reason, and I think this is the one that, that we should focus on, the larger reason, was a loss of the sense of Christendom, a corporate sense of belonging to a church that really transcends 
these frontiers. Uh-huh. People need to think of themselves primarily as citizens of Rome, citizens of eternity, which is what baptism confers. That's right. I belong to God, I belong to Christ, which means I belong to everybody else. We're all brothers and sisters under the, under the flesh. We're not primarily Englishmen or Frenchmen right. or Italians. We're Christians. That sense of corporate identity, I, I think, uh, we, we've lost it. And I think that was reflected in the Great War. And, in fact, the Great War accelerated that loss, that dissolution of a sense of belonging to this corporate body, this mystical body of Christ. Hmm. You know, there's something very strange uh, about this, because uh, it takes place at really the height of uh, Protestant liberalism. And uh, the great... uh, uh, church historian Adolf Harnack was uh, wrote some of the most intense propaganda for the German nation at that time. Eventually, there's the, in theological history, there's a reaction with Karl Barth's epistle to the Romans after the war. But I, it, I, when you think of theological liberalism, you don't yeah. tend to think of nationalism these days. Yeah. No, no, you don't. <laughs> you, you think of multiculturalism, right, pluralism right. run amok. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the celebration of, of diversity. Yeah. yeah, and that that is its own abuse, uh, I, I think. Sure. Uh, but one, one of, I mean, really one of the casualties of, of the Great War was the facile illusion, supposition, that somehow every day in every way things are getting better and better. Yes, the myth that's right. of progress and, and the perfectibility of man. That that somehow human nature is so malleable that we can shape it however we please. And we can make man into a better human being by yes. harnessing technology. And all of that went up in smoke uh, along uh, along that 450-mile stretch of the Western Front. I mean, all that survived were the poppies, you know, blowing in the wind. But the bodies were strewn high along that stretch. And this great 19th century mythology uh, was completely smashed by the war. All those pretensions about making life perfect, uh, they they were uh, incinerated. Mm-hmm. Uh, along with uh, lots of human beings. Making the world and then safe you for wait democracy. a generation and you have a second world war. I know. Which is even more uh, 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 catastrophic. Yeah. Yeah. Regis, let me thank you for being with me and for sharing this uh, reflection with us. Uh, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm honored. And uh, this is a good day, I think, to remember and to pray uh, for our world that yeah. uh, we heed the cry of the popes for peace. Thanks so much, Regis. Thank you. God bless. Bye. Dr. Regis Martin, uh, this piece, Remembering the Great War, shows up in Crisis Magazine, which we'll have posted for you at AveMariaRadio.net and the Cresta Guest Archives there. Father Benedict Rochelle. They're all legitimate differences of opinion in any religion. There are differences of opinion in Catholicism. But in Catholicism, you expect that people will take the teaching of its supreme authority seriously. To go diametrically opposed to those teachings is to not be a Catholic. Someone in the name of Catholicism is sponsoring the destruction of human life, lives of unborn children. And they got the name Catholic on the door. 
the highest authority in Catholicism and the encyclical Humanae Vitae, Evangelium Vitae, is absolutely clear that no Catholic can support abortion and that Catholics are responsible to take serious action against legalized abortion. The people you know and trust are on EWTN. There is essentially one true priest, says the Catholic Catechism, and that is Jesus Christ. All others are his ministers. There is the common priesthood in which all of the baptized and confirmed faithful participate according to their vocation. Bishops and priests make up the ministerial priesthood, which is essentially at the service of the common or holy priesthood, the faithful. Jesus is the one unique mediator between God the Father and the faithful. With a single offering, he brought about salvation once and for all. Still, that sacrifice is made present through the celebration of the Mass. Christ is made present through the ministerial priesthood without diminishing the uniqueness of his own priesthood. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Finding good health care, encouragement for healthier living, or solid spiritual direction can be frustrating. That's why the Catholic Healthcare Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering a health-sharing option. Curo's Christ-centered wellness services include Catholic wellness coaching, spiritual direction, and a Catholic community supporting your health and wellness needs. Visit cmfcuro.com to learn more. That's cmfcuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. Ciao, amici. Teresa Tamio here. If you're looking for something inspiring to give to someone this Christmas season, or maybe just a little stocking stuffer for yourself, make sure to check out the Ave Maria Radio online store. Plenty of books are sale to teach, inspire, and renew your connection with God. Speaking of sales, my book, Everything's Coming Up Rosie, is 25% off this month while supplies last. So go ahead over to AveMariaRadio.net and click on the bookstore. Happy shopping. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. This music is in stark contrast to our topic. We are remembering the Great War, World War I. Its end was November 11th, 1918, called Armistice Day. Um, we're going to be joined in just a moment here with Harry Crocker, 
who's the author of a number of important works, including uh, The Yanks Are Coming, A Military History of the United States in World War I. He's also written Robert E. Lee on Leadership and The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Civil War. Now, in many ways, World War I has shaped the world we live in. Many people see World War I and World War II as really uh, the same war with only a, a brief armistice between them. But there are historians who would tell you that the role of the U.S. in World War I was late and not all that significant. However, my guest, uh, Harry Crocker III, has argued in The Yanks Are Coming, A Military History of the United States, that the U.S. had a, a definite, uh, definitely important role in winning the victory. And uh, Harry, good to have you with me. Thanks. Well, th- thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. W- what would you argue is the most obvious evidence of the impact of World War One on today's world? Well, in the uh, in the book, I talk about how for, I mean, the First World War gets sort of, I think, short shrift. Everybody yeah. knows about World War Two right. and, and all that, but it's the First World War that actually is the war that makes the modern world. Mm-hmm. It is the war that sweeps away most of the crown heads, heads of Europe. It's the, during, it, during the war, the Bolshevik communist uprising happens in, uh, in Russia, turning in the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. You've got um, you know, advances in weaponry and all sorts of things like that. But, uh, and you've got the, the, the map of the modern Middle East comes out of the, the aftermath of the First World War, with uh, the borders of many of those countries being drawn by the likes of Lawrence of Arabia and and Winston Churchill. So those are um, fairly but, artificial boundaries, then. Well, I mean, you know, they were. <laughs> I suppose you could say artificial, but also, but, but maybe not. I mean, they they were drawn with with uh, not entirely arbitrarily. Mm-hmm, right. uh, but it's also the um, the war that that springs America into true global prominence. Um, and and it, maybe we were dragged kicking, uh, kicking and screaming into it because uh, President Woodrow Wilson was the last person, he actually, of course, campaigned on, I kept this out of war, <laughs> right. to, to want to intervene in this, in this conflict. And in that regard, he was at odds with Teddy Roosevelt. They were like the bickering Gladstone versus Disraeli um, mm-hmm. in, the, in, the, in the years uh, leading up to our involvement, with, with Roosevelt pointing out, look, when you've got the Germans waging unrestricted submarine warfare, which is actually what eventually did prompt us to enter the war, he said, look, they've already killed more Americans than were killed at Lexington and Concord and Bunker Hill, but at least the British were fighting armed men in uniform while the Germans are waging war on women, children, and businessmen going about their lawful business. Hmm. He said, you know, we're at war already. You just, you know, refuse to to confront the fact that we are. And in, in the shaping of this post-war world, of course, no one was more influential than Woodrow Wilson, who, in my book, argues bungled it. Yeah. <laughs> and he bungled it out of a certain sense of idealism, which was you know, one of the, the slogans of Wilson's... Uh, of, uh, uh, one of the things he wanted to put in after the, the, the armistice was national self-determination. Mm-hmm. And it was... This was a great disintegrator of borders within Europe, right. which had been, you know, the Austro-Hungarian Empire and whatnot. It also perversely re- rewarded the very nationalism that caused the war In that the first we mark today. Right. Yeah, with the with the assassination of, the, of Archduke Ferdinand. But moreover, it, it, with the, what Wilson and his people, his administration, came to realize after they go to Versailles to work out the peace was there were more people claiming to be nations 
than they knew of. And Eastern Europe, <laughs> they're being petitioned by all these people who, before that, had been under the Tsar, a bit under the right. Austrian-Hungarian uh, Empire. And they said, who are all these people? I don't know about these people. Who are they? So it was really done out of a foolish idealism that, in certain ways, uh, set the seeds for, for World War II. The one thing I try to point out repeatedly in the book is that when we think World War II, Winston Churchill told us this, no war was more preventable than World War II. But one of the things that, um, that we should never neglect to think about World War I is that in terms of Europe, Germany's geopolitical goals were almost precisely the same in the First World War as they were in the Second World War, yeah. including Lebensraum in the East, the subjugation of Belgium and France in the West. <laughs> Moreover, and this is, I think, maybe even the more telling point, is if we think about the ideology that drove the Second Reich. Now, no one is saying, I'm still not saying, that the Second Reich, the Kaiser's Germany, was anywhere remotely as evil as the Third Reich. However, we have it on very good authority, including an American, Vernon Kellogg, who was an evolutionary biologist, trained at Stanford. He was sent on war relief work before we were involved in the war in Belgium. And during that time, he got to sit in on some of the councils of the German high command in occupied Belgium. And these were extremely well-educated men. Many of them, in fact, had been professors in civilian life. And he was astonished. He was an evolutionist, a Darwinist himself. But he was astonished and horrified at the way that these German uh, leaders, military leaders, were infused, you've actually called it their gospel, they, they were infused, or they believed as their gospel, this idea of social Darwinism. Yes, explain that, which, because I'm not yeah. sure all listeners are familiar with the phrase. Um, it, it's, it's, an, it's astounding. I've noticed this, too, in, in uh, doing research on the history of evolutionary thought, intellectual history of modern Europe. Uh, it, it's astounding how this was, you know, a biological theory gets translated into social philosophy. So what is social Darwinism? Right. In, the, in this case, in the German case, in the case of World War I, it was a use the means to justify war. War and aggression and the subjugation of the, uh, of the defeated, and they, who deserved subjugation, who deserved to be... Um, uh, because they were, they were considered lesser orders, lesser yeah. beings. I mean, this wasn't the... the uh, the Holocaust. It wasn't sending people to gas chambers. It was uh, executing civilians who got in the way. It was saying we have every right to conquer Belgium and France. These are these are lesser peoples, and you, in a way, you sort of proved your superiority by war, by victory in war. That's right. And the Germans, who were in fact the most educated people in Europe, they were the industrial dynamo of Europe. You know, they certainly believed that they had um, they had a leadership role in the continent that was being uh, denied to them by either decadent Frenchmen <laughs> or or barbaric Russians, and um, and they were determined to exert that uh, that power. Now I, I will also say this: I am by no means um, an anti-German person either. I'm just sort of stating the the intellectual <laughs> atmosphere in which this aggression happened, because in many ways, in the outbreak of the war, the Germans, you know, they have a defensible position. They're coming to the to the aid of their ally. Um, Austria-Hungary. They're coming, uh, if they fought a purely Eastern Front war, it may have been morally justified. I mean, it was the nationalists, the Serbian nationalists, backed by Russia. And Russia had great war aims of its own. They wanted to seize Constantinople. Um, they had, they had, so there was all these geopolitical things that were going on that, that would have justified um, German 
support of Austria-Hungary. What changes the whole moral dynamic, though, is the unprovoked uh, invasion of Belgium and France, which was tied to German military strategy. Um, But also there is, even here, the sort of Darwinistic sense or or this Nietzschean sense of beyond good and evil, of beyond... Um, I'll, I'll quote the Germans themselves. Bethmann Holweg, the Chancellor of Germany, well, could not believe that Britain was going to go to war over what he called a scrap of paper. That scrap of paper were diplomatic guarantees that Belgian would be uh, its Belgian neutrality would be respected. Hmm. Now the Germans believed that neutrality. You know, <laughs> what's that? Forget about that. Right. It, 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 if there's a military justification. Any papers we sign go out the door. And the British refused to take that position. And it astonished the Germans. And, um, and it was, you know, it, that to me is what changes the whole equation. And the Germans become the aggressors that, uh, that cannot really be uh, defended. Yeah, so the, the philosophical background is important here then. The, uh, looking, I'm looking here, in fact, at a quote from... Uh, a German biologist, Alexander Till, who's uh, actually passed away in 1912, uh, he said, if an act contributes to biological decline, it is immoral, even if it fulfills the Christian command of love and compassion. Uh, he said, honor your parents should become honor your child, that it may become fit and accomplish its works in life. This teaches ethics on a scientific foundation. Uh, even the most careful selection of the best can accomplish nothing if it is not if if it is not linked with merciless elimination of the worst and the proclamation of social elimination must therefore be one of the supreme forces features of every ethics which elevates as its ideal the goal that the theory of evolution has demonstrated do not spare your neighbor this means becoming hard against those who are below average overcome one's sympathy. That was written in 1895. Was that a very common attitude among Germans? Yes. Well, mm-hmm. at least among the educated class, yeah. yes. And yeah. it went far beyond scientists. It was, you know, it infused the German high command, it infused many politicians. And uh, I think this is kind of an underreported part of the, of the story, even though yeah. the uh, Vernon Kellogg, the American biologist I, I mentioned, he wrote a book about this, urging, because he, he himself was a pacifist. And he said, look, I am not, having, even having seen all this, I am not for war, but I am for this war. Because, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but this, this German um, social Darwinism must be stopped. It wow. can only be stopped by force of arms. Now, when he wrote a book encouraging American involvement in the war, the guy who wrote the introduction to the book was no, no less than Theodore Roosevelt. <laughs> <laughs> And I I guess, I mean, throwing Theodore Roosevelt out in there is important, at least in terms of the book. I mean, I call it the angst of coming for this reason. Most World War I histories are about, of course, mostly about Europe. This book is, 90% of it is about the American involvement in the war. And Teddy Roosevelt plays a poignant role in that, because not only did he advocate what he thought the necessity of America going to war. He volunteered to go himself. Woodrow Wilson rejected that out of hand because he considered him a political right. rival. Right. But Roosevelt had four sons, and, he's, and he, uh, one of his daughters went there as a nurse before the sons even arrived. His four sons all went to war. Two of them were uh, 
badly wounded. One was killed. Mm. Of the uh, three survivors, all served in the Second World War. One of them was the uh, landed at D-Day uh, in World War II. And the sort of sweep of American history, these generations, is one of the things I try to drive home in the, in and the book. We'll pick it up there. Uh, when we come back on the other side of the break, my guest is Harry Crocker III. The Yanks are coming, a military history of the United States in World War I. Uh, many of you are familiar with uh, Harry's work in the book Triumph, which is a uh, rousing history of the Catholic Church. I'm Al Cresto. More coming back. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. We need your help. Hello, I'm Marianne Koharski, Director of Pro-Life Across America. In my 30-plus years, I've never seen such a concerted attempt to silence our efforts and at a time when it's most needed. There's a powerful effort to prevent and block our pro-life messages. Our billboards, social media, and digital ads are all impacted. Unplanned pregnancies still happen. Our ads feature a hotline number connecting callers with more than 3,000 pregnancy support centers across America, offering alternatives to abortion, free ultrasound, and pregnancy help. Babies' lives are being saved. The need still exists. It really does. And Pro-Life Across America needs your help. To donate, please find us at ProLifeAcrossAmerica.org. Did you know I could suck my thumb before I was born? Yep, we all started small. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. People think it's easier to stay in the muck. The devil that we know is easier than the devil we don't know, but what they don't realize is that the situation can get worse. And what we're seeing now with some of these very liberal orders, let's say, for example, these liberal orders that are dying out, especially religious sisters, dying out, literally folding. And then you have the religious orders such as the Sisters of Mary, Mother of the Eucharist, the Dominican Sisters in Nashville, the Sisters of Life in New York, flooded with requests for information and to meet with the sisters about this beautiful life because they're so joyful because they are living the truth of Scripture and the truth of the Eucharist of Jesus. But these people will not let go because then you have to look yourself in the mirror and then you have to surrender. I think it all goes back to the Garden of Eden. Who's God? Are we God or is God God? Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popcha. We'd all love to do more to serve others, but where do you find the time? Well, it's easy if you remember that Christian service begins at home. 
Remind your family that everything God's given you is meant to be passed on to other brothers and sisters in the Lord when you're done. Encourage your family to take good care of the clothes, toys, furniture, and other blessings you've been given so that others can delight in them when it's their turn. Then, once per season, as a family, gather the gently used clothes, toys, and other goods you've finished enjoying and bring them to your parish or other community center that can donate them to other families who are waiting to be blessed as you have been. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta, taking a look at uh, the United States' entry in World War I and how World War I shaped the modern world. My guest is H.W. Crocker III, and the book is The Yanks Are Coming, A Military History of the United States in World War I. I wanted to ask if you believe that the First World War and the Second World War are really the same war because of German war aims, because of the abuse of the Versailles Treaty, um, and what you had is a 20-year armistice between the two. Is that something you buy? Uh, yes, up to a point. I mean, I, the, the Second World War could certainly have been prevented, but, it, um, but again, the, the German war aims were very similar in Europe, um, the Third Reich was a, a, a na- was not a, a not unnatural, and put it that way, development from the Second Reich. Um, a man named Erich Ludendorff, who was the, uh, along with um, General Hindenburg, were the two leading generals of the the Second Reich during the war. Mm-hmm. They uh, essentially ran the country towards the end of the war. They practiced something they called war socialism. Ludendorff. Uh, turned out to be one of Hitler's early supporters after the war. Interesting. Uh, and actually had much of the Nazi ideology already in his head. He believed that Christianity was a weak-kneed religion that was a problem uh, and, uh, and had many other similar ideas. He fell out with Hitler, but Hindenburg, against his better judgment, was actually the man who elevated Hitler right. to Chancellor. Right. Um, so the, you had, there's a direct connection between the leaders of the First World War and uh, and the man who would start the, uh, the, the Second. Second World yeah. War. Uh, talk, what, what's the significance of the uh, bombing of the Lusitania? Well, uh, it, it is... It was one of the, it was an incident that everyone thought would drag... Not everyone, but a lot of people thought would drag America into the war because the, the Germans... Um, are practicing in this un, uh, unrestricted submarine warfare, they shoot down, they sink via a U-boat, a submarine, a luxury liner on the, with the argument that it was carrying munitions. Um, and they also said, look, we gave clear warning. We posted ads in, in New York newspapers with the clearance of the American State Department that said, look, you, if you, get, you are taking your life in your hand if you go on these ships. Um, but I think the, the, the idea that that justifies sinking a luxury liner that was packed full of women, children, civilians, right. going off to, uh, uh, to to England is, I think, absurd. Now, he, Wilson, this is where Wilson, Woodrow Wilson, President Wilson, makes a speech, there's such a thing as a man too proud to fight. He did not let that become the... Um, the uh, he, did not, he did not want that to be the, come the, the causes ally, but when the Germans, after retracting their policy of, of unrestricted 
submarine warfare, decided to reinstitute it, and in fact conspired with the with the Mexicans in the, in the you know the Zimmerman telegram, right. um, where they uh, they tried to get the Mexican government to say, look, or they tried to try to encourage the Mexican government to join the German Reich <laughs> in a in a war against the United States, in which Mexico could recover the Southwest right. territories of the United right. States. Right. Uh, the Germans, when they lifted unrestricted submarine warfare at, at the beginning of 1917, announced it in February, they did so with the presumption, with, with the assumption that it would bring America into the war, but they didn't care because America's military was so small. Mm-hmm. The German high command, Ludendorff, is the one who says this blatantly, we will defeat them, we will crush Western Europe, we'll crush or overrun France before they can ever get here. Um, and when America, when once, we, once we enter the war, and one of our uh, naval representatives goes to London, he discovers that uh, the Germans were very close. The German uh, submarine cordon around the British Isles had cut Britain off from its its empire, and it was starving. They were they were sinking so much British tonnage that the Germans actually did have a legitimate chance to win the war had America not intervened. And we know that American intervention was decisive, not just from my book, but from <laughs> General Hindenburg, who said the war was lost um, when the American infantry stormed into um, our, uh, our Western defenses. And, and uh, w- w- at the time, were the American people behind the war, or was there a strong isolationist sentiment? There was a strong isolationist sentiment on many, many grounds. Um, but after the Zimmerman telegram and after the... It, the, the uh, I mean, Woodrow Wilson sort of changed his opinion along with the American people. Mm-hmm. By the time he said, we've got to go to war, most people said, we cannot stay out of this, no matter how much okay. we, would, we would like to. So he did have that. You, you have a number of uh, profiles of the generals here and also uh, other uh, key figures. But I wanted to ask you about uh, the, the Alvin York story, uh, because many people know this Christian pacifist who ends up becoming uh, a great soldier. How significant is he in the popular imagination? Well, he used to be hugely significant. Uh, uh, I mean, I think this is one of the unique things about the book. About it, you know, the book covers all the major battles that we were involved in, all that sort of thing, the causes of the war, the, out, you know, the, the mm-hmm. Versailles Treaty. But about two-thirds of the book, I would reckon, if not more, is devoted to profiles of either the American generals, some of them who led us into combat, but also American heroes of the time. And Alvin York is probably premier among these, because he was this backwoods mountain man who was a Christian pacifist and uh, had to be convinced by his officers after he, uh, after he was inducted into the army that it was, this was a just war. <laughs> he did, in fact, become convinced, and in a, in a great story, rounded up um, <laughs> A, a more than a hundred German soldiers, virtually <laughs> single-handedly, um, and they made a movie about this right. uh, just before the Second World or before our entry in the Second World War, called Sergeant York, starring right. Gary Cooper, and it was it was obviously in a way sort of prepping us for the next war to come. Just as a footnote, I can tell you that not only was that movie hugely popular and an Academy Award winner, it is I have been told Clint Eastwood's favorite movie. <laughs> I did not know that. That's a nice. But also, I, I have a, a. I actually combine uh, the chapter on Alvin York with a chapter on uh, Father Fra- Duffy. Francis Duffy, yeah, right. T- tell who me, who was? Yeah, 
Um, well, I, this, is a, this is a religious chapter of the book, <laughs> because you've got the Catholic Father Duffy with the Fighting, fighting 69th, this Irish uh, regiment, and you've got uh, Alvin York. But uh, Duffy is not only just this uh, heroic chaplain of the war, he uh, pinpoints a man he wants to become colonel of the uh, regiment, and the man he pinpoints gets a chapter of his own, too. That's Wild Bill Donovan. Hmm. Donovan was not only a Catholic and an infantry officer in the First World War, um, he had a brother who was a priest, and perhaps even uh, of equal interest is that he is the founder of the OSS. The OSS was the World War II precursor of the CIA. Right. So he was running all these intelligence operations during the, uh, during the Second World War after having served as an infantry officer in the First World War. And I guess that's something else that I hope is, is unique about the book, is a lot of Americans, they're not really sure why we were involved, what we did, that, that sort of thing. And by looking at all these American lives, you can see that when we think of the, the, the greatest generation as the people who won the Second World War, well, a lot of the greatest generation got their start militarily in the First World War, men like MacArthur yes, and Patton, that's right. and all these men, they, that, this is what I mean, uh, I mean George, actually, George Marshall, they, George C. Marshall. George Marshall, yeah. right. Um, Marshall's a great planner already in the First World War. MacArthur's a brigadier general and wins uh, you know, in, in, in almost innumerable commendations for gallantry. Patton gets his start as a, as a tank officer. Uh, but even more than that, it's sort of putting this American experience of World War II in the full context of American history. And MacArthur's a good way to do that, because MacArthur's father, Arthur MacArthur, was a Civil War hero. Hmm. MacArthur remembered as a boy traveling in the Wild West from fort to fort with his father, and he, his vision of that Wild West was, uh, traveling with the cavalry, was like a John Ford Western. He thought, <laughs> yeah, he thought that's how he saw that time. Yeah. But here's a man who grew up with, you know, essentially wagon trains, cavalry wagon trains, um, fought in the First World War, fought in the Second World War, and lived to command in Korea where he had atomic weapons potentially at his disposal. So seeing that sort of arc of American wow. history yes, from, from covered wagons to the atomic yeah. age yeah. is something I try to bring out in the book because many of these guys had... You know, George Marshall is another one who, who, who does that same sort of uh, trajectory. Um, so anyway, that, no, that, that's, that's fascinating. Was, yeah, because yeah, you, you get yeah. that. Yeah, you get that big arc. And even some of these heroes I point out are men like maybe Sergeant York is perhaps the less well known today. Are men like Eddie, Eddie Rickenbacker? Eddie Rickenbacker was our American air ace, and he's a great American story coming from immigrant parents in Switzerland. He becomes a race car driver, <laughs> which leads him to uh, become. And he's actually he goes into um, the army not as a pilot. But as a driver, driving people like George Patton <laughs> and John, John Pershing, who's the commander of the American Expeditionary Forces. Um, and, but he becomes, he's you know, gripped with this desire for speed. He becomes a, a, uh, a pilot and as our air ace. And among those people serving with him is Quentin Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt's youngest son, who gets shot down and killed. Um, but after the war, he becomes this sort of uh, huge American hero, one of the great pioneers yep. of American aviation. Yep. Um, and just, it's just a, you know, there's lots of great stories. Like that. Even someone like Pershing. But, Pershing fought Indians. Oh, he starts wow. fighting Indians. That's... He goes to the Philippines and fights, guess what, Islamist terrorists yeah. in the Moro Uprising in the Philippines. And then he goes on to 
uh, Lee Kamar commanded the, the the top American general in the in the First World War, mm-hmm. and in the and in the in the in the course of doing so, is training the men who will win the Second World War. Right. I'm going to ask you one of these large and lumpy questions because I know you have you think historically. When you profile these uh, these leaders, uh, were they did was their understanding of spirituality, faith, God, different than what you would expect from a similar assemblage today? That's a really good question. Um, because one thing that struck me in writing the book was that these men come across as representing a distinct, identifiable American identity, yeah. which would be harder replicate today, and I can do this in ways that sound flippant, but I don't think that they are. If you asked a man like uh, uh, Douglas MacArthur or, mm-hmm. or George Patton whether women should be in combat roles in the military, they would be appalled. Right. Let alone if you ask them if open gays should be in the military. Right. Right. <laughs> it would be unthinkable to them. Yeah. And not more, it was not just unthinkable in the sense that that was just beyond their imagination. It was unthinkable in this sense, and this gets, starts heading towards your, the answer to your question about their, um, their religious views. Mm-hmm. Both MacArthur and Patton, we think of Patton as this foul-mouthed person, which was true, he could swear up a storm, but both of them viewed their calling as soldiers in a chivalric way. Mm-hmm. And in, in Patton, it is... On, on paper, I mean, he gave he gave lectures to young officers about how their vocation was the vocation of the knights of old, and had, and how they had to replicate that sense of chivalry that those men had. This chivalry was the constant within their profession. And MacArthur had he, MacArthur was not so blatant about it, but was had very similar ideas. Yeah. Yeah. So these are men who took that sort of Christian, and even though. Neither one of them were Catholic. A sort of Catholic medievalist understanding sure. Sure. of war into battle with them, in a way that I think would be. I mean, I, there are some great American leaders today who have that vision. I fear that we're losing it, though. Right? Yeah, that's the way it looks to me too. Harry, thank you so much. Uh, great, my pleasure. Wonderful being with you. And um, the Yanks are coming is the name of the book: A Military History of the United States in World War One. H. W. Crocker the Third. I'm Al Cresta. Dr. Ray Garendi. Two of the hardest words to say in the English language. I'm sorry. I'll ask couples, when was the last time you said I'm sorry? Oh, uh, I think it was our wedding rehearsal dinner. I, I spilled some coffee on her lap. I said, hey, sorry about that. Why is I'm sorry so hard to say? What does it mean to you? Are you saying... You're a failure? Are you saying, I'm wrong? Are you saying, if I say I'm sorry, I'm admitting it's all my fault. I'm sorry are two of the softest words in a relationship in the English language. I'm sorry, very hard to say, very easy on relationships. 
Ciao, amici. Teresa Tamio here. If you're looking for something inspiring to give to someone this Christmas season, or maybe just a little stocking stuffer for yourself, make sure to check out the Ave Maria Radio Online Store. Plenty of books are sale to teach, inspire, and renew your connection with God. Speaking of sales, my book, Everything's Coming Up Rosie, is 25% off this month while supplies last. So go ahead over to AveMariaRadio.net and click on the bookstore. Happy shopping. I turned from a recreational drug user to a drug addict. That took me to my knees. I lost a family, almost two families. I lost friends. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. I love it. My heart's there. I took communion after 18 years, and I, the rest of the Mass I sat and cried. God restored my life. God restored my family. God restored my love. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for any reason, visit catholicscomehome.org today. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta, and let me beat the drums a little bit here, because our friends at Annunciation Radio in Ohio need to hear from you next week. They're airing their annual Fall share It's going to be from next Tuesday through Friday. So if you're listening on any of the five Annunciation Radio stations across northern Ohio, please support your EWTN Catholic Radio affiliate. It is so important for us to strengthen these local uh, stations. It's just vital for the continued success of Catholic Radio here in the United States. Thanks for being with me today, and as usual, we will have follow-up information on all the program segments, so you can go to the Cresta Guest Archives at AveMariaRadio.net, upper right-hand corner of the homepage, tap on my face there, you'll get to the archives where we have a way you can also search for previous episodes of Cresta in the Afternoon. Uh, We have contact information for our guests and follow-up information on the interviews, and Lord willing, we'll be back on Monday for another edition of Cresta in the Afternoon. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.